check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. Here with a focus on only good things this week, I say thank you very much for joining us and welcome to episode nine of A Toast to the A-Town here on the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andre Aldrich. And hey, the tournament is in full swing and the action hasn't disappointed. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting new customers in the center of action. Bet $1 on any tournament game, and if your team wins, you win $100. It's that simple. Turning $1 into $100 is 100 to 1 odds. Pick any college basketball team that's still in the hunt for your shot at winning $100. All it takes is a $1 bet and that team winning their next game. There's no better way to put your college basketball knowledge to the test than to put your money where your mouth is with DraftKings Sportsbook. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code TBPN when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 if the college basketball team of your choosing pulls off the win. That's code TBPN to turn $1 into $100 for a limited time, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. We push on with what I definitely consider to be good news one week before Good Friday. Hawks fans were able to celebrate the fact that John Collins will indeed remain an Atlanta Hawk at the very least through the remainder of this season before restricted free agency kicks in. The trade deadline passed with John not being moved. Now, a couple of days before the deadline, John made it very clear in national interviews and beyond that he hopes to remain in an Atlanta Hawks uniform his entire career. We've all watched John grow from a very talented young player at Wake Forest to an awfully impressive pro player. And it's worth noting, he's only in his fourth season and he's only going to get better. Now, general manager Travis Schlink said, we've never had any serious conversations with any team about moving him this year. So those serious conversations will now take place after a hopeful playoff run. In the final year of his rookie deal, John is making a bargain basement $4 million this season. Whatever happens on the open market, the Hawks would be able to match or maneuver a sign and trade deal, which a lot of people in Minnesota are hoping for. I'm going to keep my concerns with the people of Atlanta. And while this always boils down to cold, hard business, I think seeing him in a Hawks uniform for the long foreseeable future alongside Trey Young is what's best for the franchise. Now, particularly at this time of year, you hear a lot about what John can't do. I'd say the things he can and does do far outweigh any of that other stuff. Heading into the post-trade deadline Friday night action, the Hawks had played 44 games. And J.C. is the only Hawk that had played in all 44 of them. So a big blue check mark on this season's durability. In 31 minutes a night, near a team high, he was averaging 18 points and nearly eight of the rebounds that Clint Capella wasn't grabbing. And the addition of Capella allows Collins not to play the five, which he did much more than he wanted to upon entering the NBA. And without complaint, I'd add. 
continuing to round out his game, 21% of his points have come on three-pointers, with 15% coming at the free-throw line, where he's an 84% free-throw shooter, too. Now, the remaining 65% of his offensive production comes on two-point shots, and let's delve into that just a little. 55% of that two-point shot production comes from points in the paint. So while the lobs and thunder dunks by John are always memorable, he's much more than that. And by comparison to that 55% number, well, Clint Capella, as a five and as expected, scores 87% of his two-point production from points in the paint. Now, no points for being a good guy, at least not on the stat sheet, but that's something our invited guest is going to speak about just a little bit later. Now, he's a good guy, despite spending a decade and a half as a Major League Baseball player, with part of that time being on some pretty wild Philadelphia Philly squads. Now, he was a pitcher, but former brave Tom Glavin swears to anyone who will listen that pitchers are athletes too. So we'll talk to Paul Bird in a moment. And while his fame is from hardball, Birdie has an unbelievable wealth of knowledge and more surprisingly, history with round ball. And being a son of Louisville, Kentucky, boxing is also a part of his story. So although he had two stints as an Atlanta Brave, we will get the absolute rundown of an epic fight between the Braves and the Phillies when Paul was with the crew from the city of brotherly love. Now, one of the slogans surrounding the Hawks for many years is one many of us understand and believe in. True to Atlanta. It's on the Hawks hashtag. I probably have a couple of t-shirts with that on it. And to be from here is to truly feel that. To live here means you understand it too. So 48 hours before the NBA trade, trade deadline, when John Collins was sharing his heart in interviews, he didn't hold back. He said there's an attachment to the city that he hopes will keep him in a Hawks uniform his entire career. He said it might, he said it might sound corny or whatever, but true to Atlanta is what I feel. Well, I applaud John Collins, not just for his play, but for his inspiration and his honesty. In my book, these are attributes that should be celebrated, not ridiculed or questions. Be who you are and try to be the very best you can be, no more, no less. And with those thoughts, you know the podcast always gets a little bit better when we can spend time listening to a very special guest. So I've done what I can do, but it's time to bring in someone that can start do middle relief, or close the show. Now, I realize some of you are in the gym working out when you listen to this or cleaning the garage, so I can't stop that kind of flow. However, if you have an opportunity to kick back and pop open a cold one, now's the time to do that and enjoy my special guest. All right, so as we continue with this edition of A Toast to the A-Town, it's time to get to the good part, people keep telling me, and you know that means uh, my invited guest is about to come in. And for the third time, uh, here in episode number three anyway, we've got a guy coming in who has a little bit of baseball skill in his background. Matter of fact, all baseball skill, played 14 years in the big leagues, and that alone is accomplishment. You play one game in the big leagues, you get your name in the big books. So, And just like my previous two baseball guests, um, he has a lot of 
face basketball history with them, and maybe not the dunking kind like Kenny Lofton or uh, the Baltimore <laughs> starring kind like uh, Brian Jordan did growing up there. Uh, but definitely both those guys picked the right sports and going to baseball. So right now, the kind of the theme of this episode has been good guys since we've been really talking about John Collins and uh, the fact that he's staying here with us uh, with the Hawks beyond the trade deadline. So let's just bring in my friend who really needs no introduction, but we introduce anyway. Uh, 14-year big league pitcher Paul Bird joins us now, former Atlanta Brave, former two-time Atlanta Brave, and uh, he's had more than a few uh, baseball uniforms in his background. Birdie, first of all, thanks for joining us here on A Toast to the A-Town, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, buddy, I am so happy to be here. You've meant so much to me in my life. Um, you don't know this, but as a broadcaster, when I came in and had no idea what I was doing and making mistakes left and right, you taught me how to calm down and you taught me about, you know, rolling with the punches and you were smooth. And, um, man, I really appreciated that you, you helped me more than you will ever know. That's all. That's, that's great to hear, man. Yeah, that, you know, that makes me feel good. And I, I got, look, all I can do is share my love. And uh, uh, that's the way I was taught and folks taught me, man. So it's good to hear that. First of all, you are the pride of Louisville, Kentucky. So yes. one of the things you're known as throughout your baseball career is one of the nicest guys in baseball, because that's just your heart. But when you as a Louisville native, you hear those of us that aren't from the area, you hear somebody that says Louisville, uh, how does that hit somebody? How and maybe you, it doesn't hit you like that because you're not. But the the average Louisville native, when he hears somebody go Louisville, uh, how does that yeah. hit them? I just know you're not from there. You know, <laughs> if you're from Louisville, you say Louisville, like you got you know, uh, you know, tobacco in your mouth stuck in the back, Louisville, you know, something like that. And uh, that's when you're a true Louisvillian. But I understand people saying Louisville when they're not there because. You know, if I'm in Atlanta, I drop a lull, you know, people don't really know, like, what are you talking about? So you have to blend it a little bit. Oh, man, super proud to be from Louisville. And, um, you know, as you know, great basketball history there. Mm -hmm. We love horses, yes. bourbon, and basketball. So I grew up in my living room breaking lamps with a tennis ball. My dad played college basketball at Indiana. He wanted me to be a basketball player. And the next thing you know, he's like, why is this kid wanting to throw everything? And, uh, you know, I just went a different direction. So let's let me go back because, uh, again, so dad was a hoopster. So we like that. Yeah. I'll take you before your time a little bit, because in 1980, the Louisville Cardinals with uh, Daryl Griffith, Dr. Duncan Stein and about yes. six other guys that went to the NBA, won the NCAA championship for Lenny for Denny Crum. And what's interesting to me is even though you're a little toddler at that point, you've got a connection to the 1980 team. How is that, Paul? So they're super sub on that team, and there was a lot of great players that went into the NBA, even if it was for a short time. Mm -hmm. But we were fortunate because my grade school, Roger Berkman, in 1983 was the super sub on that team, the guy off the bench, and he ended up coaching us. So he would take us down to Louisville and, you know, University of, and we would practice before or after those guys. And like I'm sitting there watching, you know, Scooter McRae and others, Rodney McRae on picks. I'm watching Milt Wagner shoot it. Dr. Duncan Stein, who you came in, you know, who you mentioned would come in and we're like, dunk, dunk. And he would go up and bring it home for us. So we'd all go nuts. You know, I'm in the seventh grade. I mean, it was unreal. 
So, um, you know, and Denny Crum was right there. So it was a neat story. My brother went to University of Kentucky, so I knew all the guys on those teams. I went to their 78 national championship team, guys like Goose Gibbons, James Lee. When I took my uh, ACT to try to get into college, James Lee handed me my test, and his ring was showing right on his paper. (laughs) And I would have got a higher score on that ACT because I was like, you're James Lee. And I went nuts, man, and he just smiled, and, you know, he was so gracious, but he he could dunk with incredible authority. So just this basketball uh, growing up marinade is hard to ever shake, and so um, I absolutely love the sport. That's crazy. You, as, as a seventh grader, just the fact that you could even go to the court, but you have a real connection there with the 1980 team. Let's go ahead. Maybe you're, you're, maybe you're a junior or high school year, uh, a senior year in high school, and I believe the Cardinal team there is uh, guys like Never Nervous, Purvis Ellison, and all of yeah. those guys. So you've been watching great basketball your whole life. My whole life. Like even like Jerry Eves was from our hometown. He played a little bit. Um, Wiley Brown was a player on that team. Incredible dunker. He was such a good athlete that out of basketball, he went and played tight end for the Eagles for two years and then ended up going back to basketball and playing overseas. So there were some just amazing players on that team who weren't starters. And, you know, you could sit there and uh, Charles Jones, their center, um, man, just some incredible players. And then, you know, we ran the same offense in grade school that U of L ran. So, man, I'm bringing the ball down the court. I'm point guard. I'm doing swing them. I'm passing to the right. I'm going to pick left. Uh, four corners are coming up, the two corners in the middle. And it was like an education that I've never, you know, a, a kid could only dream of. Um, really cool side note. Mm-hmm. Um, Denny Crum got to hang around Denny Crum. Like, who gets to do that as a kid and listen to him coach or whatever? So, um, years later, 2005, I'm pitching for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and John Wooden comes into the locker room. Ooh. Well, I'm talking to John Wooden about Denny Crum back from their UCLA days, and he's talking to me about what makes a great coach and having to think ahead. And here I am, 34 years in the big leagues, learning about the importance of thinking ahead in sports from John Wooden in the locker room. I had the Denny Crum connection, so I'm in. So I sat there forever. And who can say they you know, did that as a kid, and, and you get to see how it works out later on in life. So I think it's really cool. Wow. Now, uh, Bertie, you had two stints with the Atlanta Braves, but I want to think to your first one there. So you come here to town as a basketball fan. uh, You got Dominique Wilkins, I guess, in his prime kind of at the time. Uh, What was it like for you as a fan, even though you're you're a professional ball player, uh, to be able to see those early Hawk squads? I'm still upset that Dominique didn't win the dunk contest over Spud Webb. So some of you older guys will know what I'm talking about, but nobody brought down, you know, the rim with authority like Dominique. And um, I've had a chance to, you know, meet him on a number of occasions. He's so cool, so down to earth. And what a presence, you know, when you walk up on that guy. That's another thing about some of those guys in the NBA, the presence that they carry um, is really powerful. You know, sometimes you see a baseball player out of uniform, you know, they're, they're average. They look like they could be your CPA, you know, but when mm-hmm. Dominique Wilkins walks into the room, the presence takes you back a little bit. So being able to see some of those Hawks teams and, you know, even now with some of the young talent that we have, everybody talks about Trey Young, but you mentioned John Collins. Some of the other pieces that go along with Trey um, are very exciting to watch. 
And Bertie, I've seen you obviously pre-corona uh, at the arena as a fan watching basketball and stuff. I, I want to talk a little bit about John Collins because as as you and I are, are, are talking right now, it's the day after the trade deadline. And, and for folks like me and a lot of Hawks fans, uh, the fact that John Collins is still a member of the Hawks is a really big deal. Um, a lot of talk and a lot of thought that he was going to get moved because he'll be a restricted free agent during this offseason. Uh, for me, uh, he's my favorite Hawks rookie of all time, and that's not just because he brought donuts to the back of the plane when I was traveling with him. Uh -huh. Happily, that might have had a little something to do with it. But, Bertie, he's done everything that I see behind the scenes and in front of the scenes that they've asked from the moment he got here. And even though he's a big guy, he probably was not a legitimate five, but he had to play that as a rookie. And again, they tell him, hey, buddy, um, you probably only have to do this a little while, you know, or whatever. And you know how that goes in pro sports is, well, yeah, a little while might be your, your entire career and stuff. So all of the positives, the fact that he's a good guy um, makes me want him to be successful even, even more. How do you balance? How do you balance that? Best, especially with him being a young guy right now. I know he understands the business of this, but just the fact that you you, you stay true to your value, you stay true to being who you are, yeah. but you have to deal with the reality of this business. This is true in all sports, and I'm gonna pull from a counselor in California, um, incredible counselor, uh, late in his 70s, said this, and he says he counseled people all of his life, and he just said, you know, I've seen tons and tons of people um, in my office. And he said that for every 10 people I see that can handle failure, I've only seen one that can handle success. Wow. And success is really, really hard to handle. I'm not trying to make excuses for people that can't handle it. Mm -hmm. But when everybody tells you how great you are and everybody wants your autograph and nobody wants to tell you like it is after a while and then you know you hear the roar of the crowd when you do something you, it's hard to handle it's hard to stay humble so i got to interview john after he was drafted and he was talking to me about the physicality of the nba and how different that was from college and here's you know your first round draft pick out of wake forest and it's like super super smart super super humble knew what he had to do to not just stay in the nba but be very good in the nba working on that physical uh frame and so he's the real deal. He's um, and, and when that happens in any sport, baseball, when people handle success, they're very easy to pull for. And so I'm really pulling for John. And then I'm glad that he's staying here because I think you reach a point in your career where, you know, you want to win. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think he would stay here if he didn't think that winning was in the future. So um, another piece of the puzzle and one of the reasons I think the Hawks are going to be so exciting in the future, along with baseball, you know, soccer came in. So Atlanta's in a really great time period for a lot of different sports. You know, and for me, and, and obviously it's Mr. Wrestler's money, not mine, but I hope they're able to uh, uh, pony up. And and again, uh, social media is obviously a big part of everything for the athletes now. But uh, John received a little bit of criticism because on Tuesday he came out and said, look, I want to be a Hawk my entire career. I hope it works out like mm. that. And folks, there are some who say, hey, man, you're, you're hurting your leverage or you're, you're hurting your bargaining for, you know, they know you want to uh, just – is your thought just be 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 your heart, be who you are, Paul, uh, is the best at the end of the day? <laughs> I, I said the same thing uh, at different places, and yeah. it didn't work out for me as much. You know, the playing the game is kind of like the girl you ask out that's really good looking. You know, she, 
if you come on too strong, you look like a stalker. Um, <laughs> sometimes you do have to play it easy and let the game come to you. But there is something, too, about, you know, I, I want to be here. I love it here. And I think that can also encourage ownership, too, to say, you know, we got a guy that doesn't want to go anywhere else. Let's reward him. So there's different ways of looking at that. I've seen it happen both ways. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how this one plays out. Let's go back to uh, your hometown again. Uh, Muhammad Ali, yeah. one of my biggest sports heroes. But uh, for someone like you, Paul, who's actually from the same town and achieved the ultimate success as far as being a professional athlete, what was Ali like to you as a youngster growing up in Louisville? And now is that any different, if at all? Well, I think he was the most recognized person in the world. And he was from Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> wow. My, my own hometown. And I was actually a guy down the street was working with me on boxing. And I went down and was at that gym where Ali trained and was going to box. And my mom and dad pulled me out because I was very good at baseball in early age. And they said, hey, this is not the route we want our son to go down. I was a huge Ali fan. So we used to box in the basement. We used to, we didn't have boxing gloves, so we used to take socks and put them over our knuckles and then take another pair of socks and put them over top of that. And we would be having slug fests. And, you know, next year, I mean, you're three punches in and the socks come off, you know, and everything like that. But um, we were we were so, uh, you know, big boxing fans. That was just an incredible era for that sport. And he was such a, a great reason why. And um, like I say, I've met him a few times at Louisville basketball games. And, um, you know, there is a line that goes all the way down the row and up the stadium, you know, when he was alive for an autograph and an wow. uh, incredible ambassador to the sport. And, um, you know, like I said, people talk Michael Jordan and people talk these other people like, man, that's number one in sports is Tom Brady. And I'll always say, no, it's not. It's Muhammad Ali, and it's always going to be him. He was the most recognized person in the world for 20 world. years. In the world. In the world. In the story. <laughs> right. That's it. Mm -hmm. Well, now, you know I have some investigative skills. So let's, Mr. Uh, boxing with the socks on in the basement there. Yeah. Um, I'm going to now I'm, I'm gonna throw down some facts of some way that a way that I understand something. And and I'll let you break in a little later and correct me, tell me if I'm wrong or not. But again, Mr. Nicest Guy in Baseball and Wonderful Heart. And we're not disputing any of that, okay? But <laughs> for a while, for a while, uh, yeah. uh, you, you were a member of the – and again, we'll touch on this later that, you know, uh, after winning a, a NCAA championship at LSU – uh, mm -hmm. You get drafted by the, the the Cleveland Indians, but you're in the minor leagues for five years before you make it to the majors. So just making it to the majors is big. But we're going to kind of yeah. – we'll get back to that in a minute. This here's my story for now. And, again, you had two stints with the Braves, but during this time you were on the Philadelphia Phillies. And mm -hmm. the Phillies and the Braves, they had some heat back in the day. I mean, they yes. had some real heat going on back and forth in the day. So for whatever reason – uh, some of the Braves that I know that I've talked to that play at that time said that the Braves actually owned the Phillies back then. I, I didn't check those numbers, so we can look on that later. But evidently, during a game in Philadelphia, you plunked Eddie Perez. Catch. Yes. Now, Eddie yes. Perez, uh, for those of you who don't know it, my friend from Venezuela, Eddie Perez, is like Paul Bird, one of the nicest people on earth. 
This is a person you would want watching your grandmother, your kids, and anybody else in your family. They, this is safety beyond anything. But somehow, Bertie, you plunked Eddie Perez. Yeah. So we fast forward to a subsequent series now down in Atlanta between the same two teams. And John Smoltz, your friend who I believe – now, again, I'm going to let you get in here in a minute, but John Smoltz, who yeah. I believe because you knew – I heard that you as opponents actually rolled to the game together, but John Smoltz gets kicked out of this game for arguing balls and strikes. So there's extra heat out there on the diamond. And somehow Paul Bird plunks Eddie Perez in the back once again. Nice guy. What the world's going on? So here's where I can add a little bit of my investigative skills. On the bench, even though Eddie's, you know, is Eddie, Brian Jordan and some of the other Braves are all in Eddie Perez's grill. What in the hell are you doing letting that guy punk you yeah. like that? Hit you like yeah. that. Man, you're gonna what in the what in the hell's going on with you? Come on, man. You gotta you whoa, 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 whoa. So no DH to the National League, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that, that's was this stuff. So Paul Bird has to come to the plate. And those guys that bang on Eddie Perez to where some words have to be exchanged between the two nicest guys on God's earth, and a fight ensues. Do I have much of that wrong or right or help me out with the story? No, you got it. You got it all right. Um, I hit Eddie Perez in Philadelphia, and he stared me down. Now, when I played for the Braves, Eddie was my locker mate. So, And then we would go down in the bullpen. I was a reliever. He was a bullpen catcher. And we would go down and talk down there. So, like, we were, man, we were, as far as I was concerned, he was, like, my best friend on the team. Um, I would ride to the field with Smoltz. Ride home with Smoltz, you know, so, yeah, so I'm like, I hit him in Philadelphia, and he gave me the Venezuelan prison face, like, I'm going to kill you, and I'm mad, so I looked at him, and I started pointing back at him, and I walked to home and got up in his face, and I said, you know I didn't try to hit you, don't look at me like that, and so we kind of jawed a little bit, I come up to the plate in Philadelphia, and by the way, when I, when you hit a guy, and you're pitching, you don't walk towards him, and yell at it. So both benches cleared. So it didn't look good. Uh-huh. Um, so then, yeah, so then the uh, the next time I faced him was a week later in Atlanta. And so now we're in Atlanta, and Smoltz calls me, and he says, hey, what time do I need to pick you up? And I said, I'm not riding to the field with you today. And he said, why? And I said, because, <laughs> man, we're pitching against each other. I mean, I don't know. I was like, I may have to hit. I literally said this. I may have to hit you today. I don't know what's going to happen, so I don't want to ride in with you. Um, I didn't want anything to take the edge, you know, off. Because even if you are nice, and and Uh I do believe there is something about being a quality person and and being Uh kind to one another. I don't want to be a jerk. I want to be like John Collins. But when you cross the lines, Mm -hmm. that's off. Right. Like you're competing. You're competing. I don't want guys getting in the box, scratching the back part of the box, trying to take me deep because I'm nice. So – you know, as long as you're between the lines competitive. So I didn't want to ride in with John, so I'm pitching. And You know when you really try hard not to do something? Uh-huh. It's like I the do. worst thing you can do. Like our sports psychologist says, whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. Don't think of a pink elephant. So you start thinking of a pink elephant. So that's his point was like, hey, what you don't want to do is go up and think, don't walk them, don't walk them. You want to change your thinking to strike them out. So, or throw strikes. So I'm thinking, yeah, don't hit him, don't hit him. And so sure enough, I drill him. At this 
this point, I, you know, there's no way I can walk halfway to home. I mean, there's going to be an all-out brawl. So I just stand there, and I said, no. So Brian Jordan is on the first base line. Both benches have cleared again. And Scott Rowland, who is enormous, you know, yes. pushes me behind him and said, I got this birdie. And I look over there, and Brian Jordan is staring at me, and he's rubbing his cleats on the line like a bull. He's getting ready to come take me down. I do not want to – I do not want to get hit by strong safety Brian Jordan, who's now one of my really good friends. But at that time, I'd never met Brian. And I'm like, man, what is going on? You know, so uh, Smoltz is pitching. Now Smoltz is mad. Um, I get a ground. This is crazy. I get a ground ball from Smoltz, who's coming up second base. Eddie Perez, you know, clotheslines the second baseman. He's so angry. He gets automatic out, Smoltz automatic double play. Bobby Cox comes out. He's screaming. That's what we teach here. Bobby Cox ejected, thrown out of the game. I'm sitting there on the mound. The stadium is going nuts at this point. And um, so I'm coming up to hit that inning. There's two outs. Alex Arias is hitting in front of me, and Smoltz hits Arias. Because had he got Arius out and then hit me, you're putting me on with nobody out, and that's uh -huh. not good. So you want to try to put somebody on with two outs. So um, Smoltz gets ejected for that. No warning. And John, now, who is also now, – Now, hold now. I'm just going to stop you momentarily because yeah. obviously a couple of Braves who explained the story to me that Smoltz got kicked out for balls and strikes, which is a factual error. So thanks for correcting that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, no, he got thrown out because he hit Alex Arius. Umpire throws him out of the game, and John throws the umpire out of the game. Oh, John walks halfway to home and throws the umpire out of the game. He's got a vein on the side of his neck bulging coming out. They bring in Russell Springer, who was my, another one of my road roommates at LSU, and they bring him in to hit me. And Eddie Perez at the time is behind the plate. I go to walk up, and the lights go out at the field. So we got to wait 30 minutes for come back on. I go sit in the dugout, and fans are yelling at me, sticking their head around the corner like everybody wants to kill me. And Eddie Prez goes and sits in the dugout, and guys like Ozzie Guillen and Brian Jordan says, you got to do something about this right now. So anyways, I walk up to the plate, and anyways, I, I don't even want to look at him. I know it's getting ready to happen, and I'm like, man, I, do, I, I want to stay in the game. I want to win the game. I do not want to brawl right now. You know, like, um, I don't, I don't I want to throw a punch. How do I get out of this? And so I turned. I did not know he threw a punch at me, uh -huh. but he was saying stuff in Spanish that couldn't have been good. And, um, <laughs> and I just remember, I don't remember him throwing a punch. I just saw that on the video, like, years later, but I just remember – trying to wrap up, you know? And uh -huh. so I actually had Eddie in a headlock, but I was on the ground and the pile was on top of us. Kurt oh. Schilling was inches away. We can't breathe. And Andre, I got to tell you this. If you've never been on a, underneath a pile of 20 people, no, it's the most uncomfortable thing because oh. you can't breathe. So you start suffocating oh my and we're all just sitting there. Going, and Eddie Perez, this is how, this is honest God truth. He pushes, like superhuman strength, pushes up so that I can breathe. Wow. I have no idea how he could breathe. Wow. And it was like everybody got off the pile, man, and it was just, oh. it was really cool. Uh, oh. 
I actually started. I actually started praying on the bottom of the pile, Andre, because, and I don't know if that scared people. Well, I, had, I had very little breath left, but Eddie heard me, and I thought I was going to die. So, in your final moments, it's funny what you do. You know, like, yes, you don't sir. know what you're going to do. You can say you know what you're going to do, but you don't know what you're going to do. And I thought I was going to die, and um, yeah. So, Eddie got thrown out of the game. Others and Andre. I ended up winning the game, which people don't talk about. And I can still remember Brian Jordan hitting a cutter back to the mound and being so mad as he ran to first. And I'm like, please don't detour. Please don't detour. Just keep, keep running straight to first, PJ. And then after the game, I got a phone call in the locker room, and it was Smoltz. And he said, you're riding home with me. I don't care. He goes, I'll meet you at such and such corner. And I did, and I walked out of there, and I was like, man, is this going to be a white van? Like, what's coming to pick me up? I'm nervous. <laughs> and Smoltz had the door open, and before I could even get in the car, he said, he should have never thrown me out of the game. He never gave me a warning. And to this day, he can't let it go. So I just oh. say, well, John, oh, sorry God. I took you down. Oh, 1999. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's, there's, there's no story that's ever going to top that, man. <laughs> And, yeah. and the beauty for me is also the details from the other side. Um, they left out the important details. You see, you have yeah. you you better have remembered everything that happened there. Oh, oh yeah, God. yeah. Oh. And I interviewed Eddie a year ago, and I told him, I said, "Hey, I, I saw where you took a swing at me, man." And I just said, "By the way, you missed." And then I handed him the microphone. He didn't know what to say. He was live, you know, a spring training game, so it was great. Uh, that's so yeah. strong, man. <laughs> hey, hey, let's uh, let's move a let's move a few years after that, and you're on the the the, the Kansas City Royals, and 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 I understand advanced stats and, and and metrics and everything, and I I don't and look and I, I respect for you and Brian who don't say curse words, so you have to excuse me here. I don't give a shit about those right now. In 2002, yeah. you're on a Kansas City Royals team that lost a hundred games, and you won 17 games. Yeah. What 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 was that? What was right for you that season? Andre, one of the most profound moments of my life. Um, I'm about to get released. I'm throwing 81, 82 miles an hour tops. And before you get released in the locker room, uh-huh. it's weird. You feel it. You know it. People start talking to you. It's like you got the flu. And um, I could just tell. I could just feel like, man, it's getting ready to be over. So, um. I hopped the fence in spring training and everybody had gone home. I'm in flip-flops. I'm in T-shirt and shorts. And I just start working on mechanics. And I, um, honestly, you know, I'm not, I'm not on the show to give a sermon, but mm-hmm. I started praying. And I was like, mm-hmm. if I have anything to do in this, you know, prayer or whatever, I said, I, I would love to keep playing, you know. And, and I just I kind of, kind of left it at that. And I started remembering, you know. The guys like Bob Gibson, I had to get more on my fastball. So I remembered like Gibson, you know, the big high leg kick staying back. And I remembered Warren Spahn where he would lean back a little bit and swing his arms. And I started bending over at the waist and trying to do things to get more momentum into my delivery. Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of looked pretty goofy. And I even fell down because I'm in, you know, flip flops and grounds crew came over like, hey, are you player a fan and you know <laughs> like who is this weirdo you know and um yeah so the next day i um and i had had shoulder surgery i'd had reconstruction on my shoulder and i felt like i was throwing underwater and that's why 
I was struggling so bad. And so the next day I was throwing pitchers practice, which means for the pitcher, he's working on stuff, but you have live hitters in there. And mm-hmm. so George Brett was watching it. Our manager, Tony Muser, was watching it, and I knew they were evaluating me. And I'm like, man, how do I bring in something that I've just worked on yesterday? And I said, I'm about to be released anyways. I'm going for it. So I started swinging my arms and bending over and old school, different stuff and twisting a little bit more. And Carlos Beltran was in that group, and he couldn't see the ball. And guys were laughing like crazy at first, like quit clowning around. And then I kept doing it. Mm-hmm. And then everybody got quiet. And then all of a sudden, there's pop-ups and ground balls, and people are having trouble squaring up the ball. And I finished, and I walked off the field, and I didn't know how people were going to take that. And Carlos mm-hmm. Beltran met me at the line, and he said, hey, he goes, I don't know if you were just goofing around. He goes, but I could not see the ball. Whoa. And I said, man, if Carlos Beltran is having trouble Whoa. picking up a fastball – I need to stay with it. And then George Brett walked over and he said, I would have, I would have hated facing you. And I said, what? I'm like, man, you're George Brett. Have you checked your numbers lately? And you're left-handed. You would have loved facing me. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, he said, no, he said, I like guys that do 95 straight and hard. And he goes, um, I would have hated facing you. He goes, a little of this, you cut it, you sink it, you change it up, you're a little funky. He goes, man, he goes, I'm just telling you, I would have hated facing you. And I walked off the field thinking, I'm going to have a great year. Like, Uh and so, (laughs) you know, yeah, I mean, here I'm not, you know, I'm just blown away. Like, man, it it wasn't the way I would have planned anything, but I started throwing a little bit harder because I had some momentum. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, scouts and GMs and, you know, everybody loves velocity. Yes. So um, I learned that there's a place for a guy that doesn't throw hard. Holy and holy. yeah, so there's a lot of pitches I threw that year that were 82, 83, but I hit some 87s and 88s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I learned to be deceptive. And uh, end of the story, I finished my career with the Red Sox and the Indians and boardwalk and baseball is where Kansas City spring training was. And uh, it got bulldozed, knocked down. Kansas City Royals moved to Arizona. And I drove down there and I got some sand from the area where the mounds were and I put it in a jar and it sits in my office. And it's a reminder to be creative. It's a reminder to pray. It's a reminder to be passionate. It's a reminder to have fun. It's a, you know. I say creative. Sometimes you have to ad- adjust and try something mm-hmm. different. The NBA changes, mm-hmm. baseball changes, the balls have changed, what they look yes. for have changed, the talent levels change, oh. and I think in life you have to adapt. And um, so it was a a great spot along my journey. Damn, man, that's so awesome, man. And for for those of us that didn't really understand our sizes, hey, Paul Bird just decided to get a funky delivery from the 1900 or something. But <laughs> hey, I guess it's that's right. You know, you know, it's like for us, I like, hey, Bingo Long and the Traveling All Stars and Motor Kings. Look at him; he's got one right, of those that, deliveries, you know, man. And guys do that now, like Strowman. You know, yes. the, the, the hat, yes. you know, you look at uh castilla from the reds who twist mm-hmm. and guys mm-hmm. will have more of that unique flow now well back then everybody was cloned and did the same thing mm-hmm. so it, you know you combine a little funkiness with a great arm and mm-hmm. those are the perennial all-stars 
Hey, uh, before I let you go, I got to touch on this though. Um, you, you, you go down to LSU. Um, you also, as I said, you won an NCAA championship, uh, 1991 championship as an LSU mm-hmm. tiger. So uh, again, congrats on that, but you're also down there at a time when for basketball, it's, uh, Abdul Rauf, who was Chris Jackson at that time, yeah. and maybe even bigger than that, the great Dale Brown is, is the coach. What was the interaction, inter- if at all, between you as a baseball player and anyone around basketball, Paul? Well, Pete Maravich, you know, Assembly Center was big time, man. Now, that was just like the thing to do in Louisiana. You know, you tailgate, you go to sporting events. So Chris Jackson, later Abdul Rauf, um, was my freshman year. So we all go to the game, and, man, this guy runs out on the court. And I was like, this is the guy we were all waiting to see? Like his jersey was swinging on him because he was just small, and he looked smaller out on the court. And I'm like, man, this guy's got no chance. Like this guy's a good high school player, but he's got no chance. And he dropped like 35-40. And I was like, this is the greatest player I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I told you my – yeah, one of my roommates was also a basketball player, Lyle Mouton, who shot the three, and he shot less threes after Chris got there. And then my John McNamara was there, and he was the basketball manager. And Andre, I know this is tough to believe, but I um I just didn't drink in college. I wanted to get to the big leagues. I was kind of pretty well, well, focused. So. Well, it's not so much that. I mean, we had Spud Webb a couple of weeks ago who who didn't uh, drink his first beer till he was thirty five. So there uh, we you got go. Shot beyond that. So it's not that. Chuck, although, <laughs> but you are from Louisville, so go ahead. So that was yeah. John Mac. Was the, where was the manager from? Yeah, Paul? John McNamara. He's a basketball manager. So um, mm-hmm. we got to be good friends, and you know, in in the dorm, he he was the next one over and he knew how much I love basketball. So he would sneak me in the Maravich Assembly Center and on Friday or Saturday nights or whatever, when he had a chance, he would turn the lights on and we'd play horse. And uh, Dale Brown comes in one time and I'm shooting threes and he comes around the corner. He goes, is that Paul Bird? He goes, yeah. And I was like, I was like, oh, how am I going to get out of this when I'm in big time trouble? And I was like, I'm just working on my three coach in case you need me. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, he's like, you know, keep working on it, keep working on it. And he walks away to the video room, and I'm like, I guess we're not in trouble. This is great. Good. Yeah, so, um, that you know, same year, and this is my sophomore year now, uh, McNamara brings around some shoes, and he goes, hey, how about this freshman we got now? And Andre, I'm holding these shoes. They're like size, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, and they're Shaquille O'Neal's. Oh. And I'm like, come on, man, this Nobody can wear shoes this big or whatever. And sure enough, here comes Shaq running out to the court our sophomore year. So uh, we we had some some good times going to all those games. He's larger than life, and he was also very personable too. And I talked about that presence. Shaquille O'Neal had a presence like I'd never seen mm-hmm. before. Um, before he did anything, he just had that aura about him. Um, Stanley Roberts was also down there at the same time, another seven-footer, but – Shaq just simply had that presence that kind of took you back. And when you shook his hand, yours just disappeared. So, um, man, nothing like hoops, and I've learned a lot of life lessons. Even in the baseball stadium, we would listen to Dale Brown and some of his motivational techniques. Our coach was a great motivator. Those were great times where I learned a lot about not just how to play the game, but how to think. 
Awesome stuff there, man. Look, so uh, this podcast is also, uh, we are going to talk about uh, uh, food as we move on a little bit more and and hopefully get the restaurant industry back as we get uh, more close to getting everybody vaccinated and, and getting more away from the Rona and stuff. But uh, Paul, before knowing you were from Louisville and, and being around you a little bit, I would have sworn that you were a Louisiana native just on your, your seafood game. Now, I, I, I know that yeah. uh, a couple of times I took you out for, for meals to a couple of my spots in, in, in New York. And I just want you to know that, sure, I've been around the world and I've had a little taste of everything everywhere. But, you know, I, I don't do like the, the soft shell, the soft shell crab and shrimp. I just just not part of my game. You, my friend, uh, you might as well. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you have to be from Baton Rouge because you, you took to the soft shell <laughs> crab like like your damn Aquaman or something, man. So, I tore it up, Andre. It didn't have a chance. Hey, when I came from Louisville, Kentucky, uh-huh. and I'm a freshman, man, the stuff those guys ate down there, I had never seen a, like a legitimate shrimp. I had seen like a little bit of shrimp fried rice, and that was my only experience mm-hmm. with any kind of shrimp. No uh-huh. seasoning, no whatever. I get down there, man, and they're throwing up buckets. I mean, talking like big bins, trash can bins full of crawfish. And I'm like, those are like mud bugs. Like we would get those out of the mud in the creeks in Kentucky and fight them. Right. Like right. y'all are eating bugs. And it's like, like, no, man, this is, this is the great ads. And I'm like, what? So the next thing you know, I'm, I'm trying to peel these things that I don't want to eat. Guys are grabbing them. They're sucking the head, all the juice out. And I'm like, y'all are, y'all are crazy. Uh, my mouth's on fire. I'm breaking out in a lather and a sweat. We move on to shrimp. I'm so nervous. I got to lather it up with a bunch of ketchups just to, you know, try and get it down. And that was my, I'm like, I better learn to eat this stuff or I'm going to starve. And Bruce Hart was our cafeteria where all the athletes ate. And they would have the catfish. They would have the jambalaya. They would have the red beans and rice with the hot sausage. And I was like, you're like, eat this or die. Coming from Kentucky. Oh my gosh, that's a different world. But I got on the train. I married a woman from New Orleans, Kim Bird, who I love dearly. Um, you know, she's half Chinese, so I got an introduction into what authentic Chinese looked like, what authentic this, that. I'm going to say this. I've been all over the world. I need you to look at me. I need you to hear this, my friend, because I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I've been all over the world. There's nobody better to go to New York City with and get taken around town than Andre Aldridge. You, my friend, are the absolute best. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and take that to the bank, then, Bertie. Appreciate you I mean saying it. that. And uh, uh, it was, it's always good to spend time with you, man, every single minute. Hey, my friend, uh, nothing but the best, as I said, 14 years in the big leagues and uh, now in your second career as a broadcaster, and you're just as good as that as you did out there on the diamond. So, man, continue to do good things. Thank you so much for spending some time and sharing some great stories with us here on A Toast to the A-Town. And, and the only deal I have to make with you is this, this won't be your last time on. Bertie, thank you very much, man. I appreciate that question. You can think about as we go, when are we starting our cooking tour around the country? Me and you, video show, finding the best restaurants. I'm in. You got it. You got a deal. We're going to work on that. Birdie, thank you again. And, and uh, God bless to the wife, too. Hell, Kim, we said hello. See you, my friend. All right. And really, uh, once again, 
there's nothing I need to add to anything that was just uh, said right there by Paul Byrne. And again, uh, you don't get the moniker as, as as the best guy in baseball, nicest guy in baseball. You can see it from his heart right there. But, oh, my goodness, uh, the stories he has are just next level. And those are basketball stories. You get to baseball, it is definitely another level indeed. So, uh, hey, we appreciate all of y'all joining us here. And remember, there's nothing wrong with being the good guy. Nothing at all. And as Hawks fans, we are very, very thrilled uh, that John Collins is going to be riding out the rest of this season with us and hopefully for many, many seasons to come. Hey, make sure you hit that subscribe button right here. Thanks for joining us. I will see you next time here on A Toast to the A-Town presented to you by the Basketball Podcast Network.